Children's Church. Well, it's good to see you this morning. It's been wonderful to hear you lift up your voice in celebration of our Lord's holiness and his redemption this morning. And I trust that that's coming from a heart that is overflowing with joy. It's always great to gather for corporate worship. You know, you may be here in a good place spiritually this morning, but someone else has limped in or crawled in because, honestly, it's been an awful week spiritually. And they got to hear and see you exercise your faith and strengthen theirs this morning. So thank you. My name's Jim. If you're our guest, uh, one of our guests, I, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and I sure hope I get to meet you after the service. I'll be running around the lobby looking for people I don't know. Help me find you, okay? And I'd love to shake your hand and welcome you, and I hope that you'll return again often to worship with us here at Calvary Baptist Church. As a matter of fact, if you're our guest today, your first time here, uh, we have a gift for you at the Information Center out in the lobby. So go get your gift from the Information Center. Just tell them I'm a visitor, and then come find me. I'll be looking for you, okay? Looking forward to interacting with you. Uh, just a, a reminder, men, uh, whether you're a church member here or this is your first time, uh, 15 and older, we have a special men's ministry bonfire dinner this coming Friday night, and we invite you. I'm looking forward to it. This is our final meeting of season five of our men's ministry. Whether you, Even if you haven't come to any of the other meetings, you're welcome to come to this one. We invite you. But if you're going to attend, we absolutely need you to sign up. Everyone that's going to be in attendance, make sure you sign up at the information center so we know how to prepare for food, and you'll be getting... Um, an email from me uh, as to where the bonfire is. It's going to be on Merritt Road, not far from here, and I uh, hope that you can join us. Well, please take the notes out that you were given as you entered this morning, and also open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, whenever, you learn quickly as a public speaker that whenever you're going to publicly go after someone's vice, make sure it's not your vice as well. And so this is me not picking on coffee drinkers this morning. That's my vice. I want to talk to you chocolate people. This is just your soft spot. Chocolate. Anything chocolate. And, and you're a little tired of people telling you that you shouldn't eat chocolate. You just love chocolate. When you're not eating chocolate, you're thinking about eating chocolate. It's just your thing. And good for you. But some people are like, no, you need to go without chocolate. You know what that would mean for you? That would mean suffering for you. You couldn't get chocolate. So I'm here to help you this morning. I'm here to strengthen your vice if you're a chocolate-holic. Because I came across an, ac a an actual study that was done online. Places like University of California, San Diego, Harvard... Uh, some higher education in Italy. And I have right here 11 reasons that chocolate is good for your health. 11. It turns out that chocolate, especially dark chocolate, reduces body mass, prevents blood clots, improves numeracy, whatever that means, but I want more. And it may prevent cancer, and it doesn't ruin your complexion. Walk with me for a moment, you chocoholics. I'm hoping you hear a new study suggests that eating chocolate can help you stay thin. Researchers at University of California, San Diego, have found that people who frequently eat chocolate have lower blood mass or body mass indexes than people who don't. 
Other evidence indicates that chocolate can also ward off strokes, heart attacks, and diabetes. What are some of the benefits from some of these researchers? Number one, chocolate decreases stroke risk. Chocolate reduces heart attack. Chocolate protects against blood inflammation. Chocolate helps with math. Did you know that? Um, British psychologists found that, and I'm going to butcher some words here, flavanols. That's a class of flavonoids which are found in chocolate. These, found, these helped people with their mental math ability. I didn't get enough chocolate when I was in junior high. I know that right now. It can help prevent cancer, according to the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at Georgetown. Chocolate reduces the risk of diabetes, according to the University of L'Aquila in Italy. Chocolate is good for your skin, one researcher found, a group of Germans. Um, chocolate can control your coughs. It's a cough suppressant. It improves your blood flow, according to a Harvard study. It does strengthen your brain, according to John Hopkins University, and it makes you live longer. I love this one. Jean-Louise Calment lived to the age of 122, the oldest anyone has ever lived at the time of this research. She ate two and a half pounds of dark chocolate every week. Harvard researchers found that eating chocolate actually adds two years to your life expectancy. Have I helped you out enough here? If someone gets on your case and says, hey, you need to stop eating chocolate, why heed that? That would move you into a place of suffering. And I've given you a good, uh, 11 good reasons to stay with your chocolate vice. <laughs> Being without chocolate might be suffering for some people, and, and we can have fun with that a little bit, like we have this morning. But there is another type of suffering that's not funny. And that type of suffering is what occasioned Peter to break his 15 years of New Testament silence, if you will, to write this first epistle that bears his name. It's an epistle that if we were to, to shorten its theme to just a few words, it's this, two words, suffer well. Suffer well. Because it's coming, as a matter of fact, it's suffering, a growing persecution of Christians who are suffering because of their identification with Jesus of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's because of their association with him, their identification with him as his disciples, suffering was kicking in. Persecution was increasing in its volume, not just in the area around Israel, but all the way to Rome. People were persecuting Christians. Governor, the government was persecuting Christians. As a matter of fact, a fire was started in Rome by the emperor himself, and eventually he passed the blame off on Christians, only to increase a persecution that had already started, a distaste in the mouth of Caesar for another king named Jesus. It's this wave of persecution that will actually not only claim the lives of many of those that Peter's writing to, but it would claim his life as well. And tradition tells us that his wife first and then Peter would indeed be persecuted for their faith. They would both be crucified and Peter upside down. Suffering like this isn't funny. And that's why I'm so thankful that Peter is writing this epistle, not just to those who will need it because they're going to suffer, 
But as we talked about in the Membership Matters class just a few minutes ago in Sunday school, we're choosing to preach through 1 Peter right now because our persecution here in the West is here now. It's here. We no longer have to talk about the persecution that's coming. We better get ready. It's here. We live in a cancel culture that has its primary target, its crosshairs on anyone who holds to a Judeo-Christian value or ethic. Anyone who says, Jesus is Lord. And not only do we submit to the Lordship of Christ, but everyone must. Of course, it's going to draw the attention of persecution. And not just on a human level, but it's only going to be heightened in the spiritual warfare level. So Peter's writing to teach Christians then and Christians in 2023 how to suffer well. And this is what we've been seeing from the opening verse of this epistle. We've gone through the first 12 verses in our study in this series. And just by way of review, I just want to remind you that in verses 1 and 2, we saw that Peter said, suffer well because of who you are. Or you could put it in one word for that one, redemption. Look at your redemption. This is your identity. You have been rescued. You are in Christ. Every member of the Trinity is involved in your new standing of forgiveness. Suffer well because of who you are. But secondly, suffer well, we saw in verses 3 through 9, because of what you have. What you have. This great salvation, where did it come from? And it came from a God who initiated it. He came looking for you before you ever looked for him. And somehow, and, and, and this is a wrestling match for our finite minds, in eternity past, before time, God chose to set his redeeming, forgiving, saving love on you. And at a point in time, he gave you faith and repentance to see and to believe and to submit. And not only that, but he, it's he himself that's not only guarding your inheritance in heaven, but he's guarding you until you get to your inheritance. This is what you have. Or you could summarize it in one word. Don't, in verses 1 and 2, you're focusing on your redemption. That's how you suffer well. Number 2, verses 3 through 9, you're, you're focusing on your Redeemer. And that's how you can suffer well. But then we saw in our previous study to this one, in verses 10 through 12, this. Peter said, suffer well because of how you know. Or if you want this in one word, the word revelation. How do we know about this Redeemer? How do we know about this salvation? How do we know about the suffering Messiah that would also be glorified? How do we know this? And it's because of the book that you have open on your lap right now. I mean, the prophets were careful, but didn't understand everything that they were writing about the coming Messiah. And then the New Testament apostles, after the ascension of Jesus in the book of Acts, preached and, and connected the dots under the Spirit's leadership between Old Testament promise and, and Jesus and they preached a very clear, complete picture, which we eventually will have in what we call the New Testament with the Old Testament. It's quite a revelation. But if that weren't enough, Peter even says, these are things that even angels are curious about. Suffer well because of how you know the scriptures that you have on your lap. So he's saying, suffer well. But I have a question. I have a question at this point 
in our study in 1 Peter, after having gone now through the first 12 verses, I have a question. And the question is this. Where does this position we've been talking about for 12 verses, where does this position lead out? I mean, what's the end game here? And the answer is simply this. You want to know where your salvation is intended to go? You want to know why you've been redeemed? The answer to this question is this. Holiness in life. That's where this leads out. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I want to talk to you this morning from just these three verses on the absolute necessity of personal holiness. The absolute necessity. But I have to make an unfortunate stop before I get to the sermon. Because you and I have lived long enough to be told all the wrong reasons to be holy. Right? You say, give me some examples. Okay, what are some examples of wrong reasons to be personally holy? Number one, it's because of type A personalities, the voices of those leaders in our past be it a church or a school. It's type A strong personalities who who lived in front of us and exacted from us a currency of the fear of man. Where we were told, unless you get in line here, we're going to have problems. And not really we, you. You need to match up with my personal preferences on the smallest of details or you're wrong. You're not holy. That's a wrong reason to be holy. Another wrong reason is allegiance to a particular Christian college or university where there was a culture of heaviness and triviality and intimidation. Another wrong reason to be holy is, well, you just want to blend in with the nice people in the church lobby. You want them to accept you and and, and so you're just merely going to imitate them, at least when you're around them. And I would argue that that's just as much driven by the fear of man as the type A leaders that I mentioned a few moments ago. All three of those are wrong reasons to desire personal holiness. Another wrong reason is because you have an allegiance to popular authors or, 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 or speakers that can fill a conference auditorium. I would call that idolatry. That's not a right reason to be holy. And another wrong reason to pursue personal holiness is because you've found, you've just found at this point in your life that being religious on the outside helps your life go a little smoother in your home, in your friend circles, in your social media. And brothers and sisters and friends, I'm just going to tell you, all five of those reasons are the wrong reasons to grow in personal holiness. 
All five of them need to find, a, I'll say this carefully, a shallow grave in the backyard. But, just because there are wrong reasons that we can all relate to in some fashion, there are wrong reasons to not pursue holiness, that does not negate or cancel the urgency and the requirement to pursue personal holiness. I would argue this way. All those five reasons I just mentioned should be making you and me all the more hungry for a higher motivation for holiness. One of the classic books on holiness, most of you have read, it's by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. If you don't have that on your bookshelf, you should have it. It, 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 stayed in print. it has stayed in print for decades. But there's a book that hit the market a few years ago that I hope gets as much weight and longevity as Jerry Bridges' book. It's a book by a Presbyterian pastor named Kevin D. Young. And the name of the book is The Whole in Our Holiness. I'm going to give you a statement from his book. De Young writes, quote, It sounds really spiritual to say God is interested in a relationship, not rules. He says, it sounds good, but it's not biblical. From top to bottom, he writes, the Bible is full of commands. And these commands are, meant, are not meant to stifle a relationship with God. Rather, these commands are meant to protect it, to seal it, and to define it. He's right. So what is a higher motivation for your personal holiness? What is a higher motivation? It's going to be found here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. I need to give you a few interpretation notes for those of you that are digging deep ahead of me already. Let me tell you what you've already learned from these four verses. First of all, in these four verses, there are only two main Greek verbs. I want to show them to you right now. So that when we get to them, you'll say, ah, that's one of the two verbs. Uh, because it's going to look a little different than, than your English translation. The two verbs, the first verb is in verse 13. It's that phrase, fix your hope completely. That's verb one, fix. You're going to fix your hope. The second verb is way down in verse 15, two verses away. Like the Holy One who called you, here's a second verb in this paragraph. Be holy. So fix your hope and be holy. Those are your two driving verbs in these four verses. You got that? Okay, I'm going to step out a little bit into the deeper end of the pool with you right now. Because all around these two main verbs are three participles that carry the command of force. You say, where are those? Verse 13 Prepare your minds. It should be preparing your minds. And then the second one is keep sober. Literally, keeping sober. And then verse 14, do not be conformed. Those are your three participles that support those two main verbs, but those participles carry with them the command force as well. I'll come back into the shallow end of the pool now. But this is important because you said just a moment ago that you want a higher motivation 
for pursuing personal holiness. You want a deeper and far better and more satisfying reason to even evaluate if you're even growing in personal holiness. As we go through these four verses right now, I want to hover over these verbs and participles and give you five motivations to be holy that are right motivations. Or in other words, what are all the right reasons to pursue personal holiness? There's five of them. Walk with me. Number one, it's simply this. The provision of the gospel. You say, why should I be mindful of growing in a personal holiness? Why, why should I be mindful of being distinct from those around me who don't know Jesus? Why should I be mindful of decisions I make when there's no one else in the room except for me and this screen? Why should I be concerned about that? The first reason is this. It's the provision of the gospel. Look at verse 13. Look at that first word in the English. Therefore. Stop. You say, we'll never get through these verses. It'll go faster. The word therefore is a short Greek word that is just packed full. You say, well, what is it packed with? That one word at the beginning of verse 13 has packed in it verses 1 through 12. Everything we've already said about your redemption, about your Redeemer, and about the revelation, the Word of God that has shown us our redemption and our Redeemer. I mean, all that's packed into one verse. How would you summarize verses 1 through 12? The Gospel. And what Peter is doing here as he crests quickly into verse 13 is he is, as one commentator said, this word, therefore, is the hinge, listen, of the whole epistle. It's happening at the very beginning of the epistle. It's the hinge. Peter's a little bit different in his writing style than Paul. Paul would usually split the book in half and have the first half of his book roughly be the indicatives, we say, and the second half of the books be the imperatives, or in other words, what has been, as one writer says, what has been done by Christ that we couldn't do. And then the second half is, therefore, what do we do because of what's been done? But here, Peter can't control his pen in excitement. He's so pumped after reading or writing verses 1 through 12, he says, stop, pause, let me tell you how this should impact you. This gospel takes you from the indicative to the imperative. It forces you to move from your creed to your conduct. As J.H. Jowett, another preacher from an earlier generation, said, the dynamic of duty is born in the heart of the gospel. Here's what Peter's saying. He just finished talking about the prophets wanting to figure this out, what they were writing. He just got done right before the word, therefore, saying the angels are leaning into this. And we have to ask the question, if the angels are leaning into it, not, it's not only about what happened to save us. Listen. But what does a saved person do? Not because they have to, listen, but because they delight to. Because they are driven by a grace that has overwhelmed them. 
It's come for them. It's rescued them. Now it animates them and gives them a desire to be, as Jesus said, salt and light. You say, why should I be personally holy? Because of the provision of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just show up in your life, save you as a fire escape, and then point the direction and say, now don't stop going down this road. No, the gospel in the person of Christ as you are clothed in his righteousness, as the spirit of Christ animates you and gives you resurrection power, the gospel walks with you as you become more like Jesus, as you grow in holiness. It's the provision of the gospel. I mean, if the angels are curious to see how this thing works out, what the, the end game is, shouldn't we? You could look at it this way. You were saved to stand out, period. You were saved to stand out, but you were also, you could look at it this way, redeemed to reflect a holiness. You were converted, listen, to contrast a world that isn't redeemed. You were rescued to play a part, ultimately, in the recreation of everything that sin has ruined. The old evangelist D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. I like that. You say, why should I, why should be, why should I be concerned about personal holiness? Well, first of all, it's because of the provision of the gospel. You're not dragging behind you as you go through 1 Peter verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1. They're pulling you forward. So what's the key concept here? The key concept you need to remember with this reason to be holy is this one word. It's immediate. You say, what do you mean by that? When you come to Christ, whether you were, you were 8 years old, 18, or 80, you started a journey, an immediate journey, at that point, which never ends. You don't say, well, I'll get serious about the Lord when I'm 16 or when I'm 30 or when I'm married. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a radical journey that started immediately. You say, what if there's no desire? What if, what, what if um, I don't even think about this. What if I actually take great pains to blend into the world so I can trick them into getting saved so they think I'm normal? And that's a direct quote. What if, what if I'm aggressively being evangelized by the culture, but I promise to come back before I die? I would suggest to you that you haven't tasted verses 1 through 12 yet. You're, I didn't say you weren't religious. I didn't say your attendance was bad. I, I'm saying I don't see any life. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if salt loses its saltiness... What good is it? How do you you re-salt salt? The provision of the gospel is really all the reason we need to grow in personal holiness. But there's a second reason, a second motivation. And we'll call this one the battle for the mind. The battle for the mind. Look at verse 13 with me. Therefore, and here it is. Preparing your minds for action 
keeping sober in spirit, and here's our verb, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm calling this one the battle for your mind. You see, the reality is this. Left to yourself, your mind will sink. It will sink you into unholiness. Left to yourself, left to myself. There's a gravity that even though we are rescued from the penalty of sin, there's a gravity that our flesh still feels also keenly pulling us backwards. And it starts with the mind. So if it starts with the mind, the attack, the attack is going to be countered. Where? In the mind. And that's where Peter starts. He says, fix your hope. Or as some of the translations say, gird up the loins of your mind. You say, I don't, what does that mean? Well, you, you've seen the picture and, 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 and the men in this day and even in the Old Testament times would wear a flowing robe. And, but if they had to walk a long distance or if they were getting ready to go into a a time of conflict, or they were walking a difficult path between cities where they might have to defend their lives against robbers, they would tuck in, they would pull up between their legs their, their, their robe and bring it up and tuck it into their belt in the front. It looked like a guy sometimes with a giant diaper, okay? But he can kill you, <laughs> okay? So let him, look, let him do what he needs to do. That's gir- what are you doing that for? You are, you are girding up the loins of your mind to produce something that is going to be helpful in a time of war or a time of a great journey. You're removing obstacles so you can run and climb and fight. And so he says here, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in your spirit. There's two sides to a coin here. You have a disciplined mind which means you remove distractions, just like you're removing a flowing robe. You're removing distractions because you're going to be in action. So that's a disciplined mind, but it's also a focused mind because he says here, keep sober in spirit. You say, what's up with that word sober? It's actually a very good English word for this particular Greek word, nepho. And it does mean, initially, the first thing the reader would think is, this means not to be intoxicated with alcohol. That's what it means. And Peter, I believe, is not, he's not unincluding that concept. But he's pressing beyond that to say not to be intoxicated with anything other than the truth. If girding up the loins of your mind is talking about a disciplined mind that removes distractions, being sober in your mind means to have a focused mind where you can focus on the truth. So this is a two-sided coin. Remove distractions and stubbornly fix your mind on these gospel truths. It's a battle for the mind. The battle will always be in the mind. It's interesting here. Peter's going to use this concept again, this battle for the mind concept, this sober issue. In chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. And in light of persecution, he's going to say in chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, 
be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's a two-sided coin. Remove the distractions. What could the distractions be? Oh, anything. It could be entertainment. It could be where you go to refresh yourself. It's not saying you can't do those things, but if we do those things at the expense of finding our ultimate fulfillment in Christ and in his word, we're distracted. The writer of Hebrews will put it this way in Hebrews 12. He'll say, laying aside um, uh, any, any, the, the sin that so easily besets us, but also any, any hindrance in addition to sin, any distractions, have a focused mind on these gospel realities. A great pastor who died at a young age, Robert Murray McShane, a long time ago, was preaching a sermon at an ordination service. This is in 1840, on October the 2nd. The young man being ordained was a man by the name of Dan Edwards. And Dan was going to Germany at that time to be a missionary to the Jews. And at his ordination service, Robert Murray McShane shared these words publicly to Dan Edwards. Quote, Daniel, I trust you will have a pleasant and profitable time in Germany. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man, your mind. He says, I mean the heart, the mind. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, Daniel, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. And it is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God, end quote. He's saying, you want to make a difference, Daniel, here? As we ordain you and you go to Germany with the gospel to the Jews, I'm going to tell you the secret. The secret is to, is to guard your mind, free it from distractions, and see clearly through the lens of the gospel that saved you. You look at every relationship in your life through that gospel. You look at every suffering moment in your life through that gospel. You look at your gifts, your weaknesses through that gospel. What's the key concept for this one? The key concept is one word. It's just constant. Constant. You never coast as a Christian growing in holiness. You never relax, whether you're in public, around people, or whether you're by yourself with that screen. You never relax. It's like some of you in the medical world. We have a lot of people in the medical world in this church, I've noticed. and You know what I mean when I say you have to scrub in. It's not like washing your hands at 7-Eleven. I mean, you're scrubbing and you have a routine and you have different strokes and how many times you, you put the soap over, over parts of your arms and, and you're very mindful to scrub in. And that's what Peter is saying here and it starts with your mind if you're going to grow in holiness. It's where the battle is. It's where your worst enemy is, which is you. It's anything that 
that, that, that comes in, whether it's online, on television, what you're reading. Because Proverbs 23.7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What's the third motivation for personal holiness? The third motivation is this. What will keep you holy? The return of the Lord. The return of the Lord. You see, having a discipline and a focused mind, an undistracted mind that is focusing on the right things, not only looks back at verses 1 through 12, the gospel, but it's looking forward to something. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to be impressed. Something's in Peter's sights here. What is it? I mean, we are only in verse 13, and already four times Peter has said, Jesus is coming back. Focus on this. Remember that? Verse 5. Look at verse 5. We are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed or uncovered in the last time. That's talking about future Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Obtaining as the, and here's this phrase, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Three times already, and now in verse 13, it's number 4. We are looking forward to something that is going to move us towards holiness. And away from blending into an unsaved world system. What is it? It's the return of the Lord. I like this word, uh, fix your hope completely. Or in other words, perfectly, without reserve. And then there's something else interesting here. Talking about the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we stand in his presence. This word, be brought to you, is actually something that is in a present tense. I mean, this thing's already started moving towards you. It's not like, well, maybe Jesus will flip the switch today and start coming back. No, the flip's been on. His coming is already moving towards you. You say, well, Peter lived all those years back then and, and Jesus hasn't returned yet. Well, we must be a lot closer than Peter then. That's all I can say. Because you even hear, as you read out loud the book of Revelation, I come quickly. This is the imminent return of Jesus. Paul is taken in with this. Just, just write this down. Philippians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. I'll just quote it to you. If then you be within Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth, for you've died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ is revealed, then we'll also be revealed with him in glory. John gets in on this as well. In John, 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, it's right now we are the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know this. When he appears, we're going to be like him. We're going to be just as he is. And then you know what John says? He says, everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. 
Peter says, he's coming back. This is the fourth time I'm telling you here at the beginning of the letter. He's coming back. And what's the effect of that? Not just a nerdy academic study of prophecy. Academic study of prophecy is important. And I believe there's great clarity in it. Because we have details. But being satisfied to keep it just an academic thing where we're not loving others and we're not growing in our understanding and practice of worship is just that. It's just an academic thing up there with history and social studies. No. When our eyes move towards the future of Peter's writing, he's saying it's going to have an effect on you. This is the motivation towards holiness. The final salvation, and Paul says in Philippians 3 and Romans 8, will be the ultimate salvation of even our body. We get a brand new body. The hymn writer Horatius Bonar wrote these words, Come, Lord, and tarry not. Bring the long-looked-for day. Oh, why these years of waiting here, these ages of delay? Come, for thy saints still wait. Daily ascends their sigh. The spirit and the bride say, Come, dost thou not hear the cry? Come, for creation groans, impatient of thy stay, worn out with these long years of ill, these ages of delay. Come and make all things new. Build up this ruined earth. Restore our fated paradise, creation's second birth. Come and begin thy reign of everlasting peace. Come, take the kingdom to thyself, great king of righteousness. What's the key concept on this motivation? One word, eclipse. You're going to need this one. When people persecute you because of your identification with Jesus, I'm not saying, and Peter's not saying, it's not going to hurt, but there is a reality that will eclipse it. And it's the glory that shall be revealed in us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a bigger treasure coming. What's the fourth motivation for personal holiness? The fourth motivation is this, the pressure from the world. The pressure from the world. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Fascinating. And then he says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Uh, it's interesting to see this be conformed. That particular Greek word is used only one other time in the entire Greek New Testament in this form. And it's Romans chapter 12. You know the verse. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word conform means to, as is often said, and it's correct, to be pressed into a mold. It's, there's a pressure being put on the outside to conform. And it is interesting, the tense of this word for conform in verse 14 is middle. We would call it middle. What does that mean? It's not... It's not, this is happening to you and you're helpless. That would be passive. Middle means you're doing this to yourself. You're allowing something to conform you into its image that you don't have to allow. There's a pressure from the world. We won't deny that. But we do have to remain responsible if we allow it to affect us. 
especially as gospel people. You know, in this room right now, in this room right now, we cannot help, we have no choice but to be exposed to AM radio signals right now in this room. If I had an AM radio, I'd turn it on and we'd see that they're in this room. We have no way, we have no choice but to be surrounded by FM radio signals. We have no choice to be, uh, but to be surrounded by uh, Wi-Fi signals and Bluetooth signals, if you will, cell phone signals. They're here. But it doesn't mean we're helpless. That's a beautiful picture, a helpful picture in my mind, not a beautiful picture, a helpful picture of the forces of this world led by Satan and his demonic forces who are well organized as a kingdom to suppress us. They know we're redeemed, but they don't want us to be holy. They know we're children of the light, but they don't want us to be bright. And we must withstand. That second motivation was was, uh, dealing with our own heart. This is fourth motivation is dealing from what's coming in from the outside. What's the key concept here? One word, idolatry. You see, the world is pressing their values, the spiritual dark values, the values that Romans 1 defines as a, as a culture in decline that will eventually face God's full expression of wrath. They force their values on you every day. You'll never live a day where you say, well, they weren't around me today. They are. John, again, will write, all that's in the world, and he's going to summarize it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He defines it. In other words, there are pressures every day pounding on you, pushing on you, to want what the world wants as far as possessions and attention and value, and contentment. That's worldliness. Kevin DeYoung from his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, writes these words, the world is not another way of saying the people around us. No. The world is everything that, appear, that opposes the will of God. To put it another way, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange, end quote. That's worldliness. And every single day, brothers and sisters, it's pressing in on you. It wants to convert you. It wants to suppress you as a child of light. And if you're not saved, it wants to keep you blind to a Messiah that will satisfy everything you continue to look for in those three expressions of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The pressure from the world, when you're rescued out of that by your Redeemer, what suddenly was damning to you, listen, becomes a motivation for you to grow in holiness. The pressure from the world. He says, as obedient children, we're God's children, and he started this whole relationship, remember. That's why we call him Father, verse 3. As obedient children, don't allow yourself to be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours and your, and here's a definition of this word, ignorance, before you were saved. Paul writes much about that in Ephesians 4. Well, there's one more motivation for your holiness. The resemblance in the family. The resemblance in the family. 
is all the motivation you need to be concerned with personal holiness. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 14 again. Let's go to verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy. Why? Here it is. For your dad's holy. Your father is holy. He says, for I am holy. It says like the Holy One, verse 15, who called you. And Peter's not going to get far away from this concept of God calling you. Not only to salvation, but listen to what else he's going to say you are called to. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Look at this. So that you may proclaim, this is talking of your holiness, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's not it. Look down at verse 21. You have been called for this purpose as Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, even in your suffering. Chapter 3, verse 9. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose. And we see another one in chapter 5, verse 10. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, strengthen, confirm, and establish you. He says this is part of our calling. As his children, as his children of obedience. You could translate it that way, as obedient children can be children of obedience. Listen, you understand what he's saying in this verse? He's saying our growth in holiness, our growth in obeying Jesus, our growth in following the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Trinity, is an issue of relationship. It's not duty. It's DNA. It's who we are now. You know, when I grew up in Warren back in the 70s, my dad would remind me from time to time when I was being a knucklehead, uh, what's your last name again? Newcomer. Oh, I share the same last name. Here's what newcomers do. And then I get that long lecture, right? Rightfully so. You know, but he would also say things like this. Since you carry my name, newcomer, He says, we newcomers cheer for the Detroit Tigers no matter what. We newcomers go to lakes a lot. We newcomers fish. We newcomers drive American-made cars back then. We newcomers never stop, not even at a rest area in Ohio. Okay, I mean, which is stuff that we did with our last name. That's what God's saying here, though, on a higher, eternal plane. If your father's holy, if the one who called you is holy, you must be holy. Let me ask you a question. Does God ever blend in? Does God ever blend in with what he looks like, what he does, and what he says? Is he ever trying to hide that holiness? No, we have a family resemblance. What's what's the key word in this one? Separateness. Separateness. You say, spell that. No. No. Oh, you figure it out. Separateness. But that doesn't mean being weird. That doesn't mean being quirky. True holiness is refreshing. 
It begins in your mind and shows up in your choices. It's in all your behavior, not merely your thoughts, words, and your location, your associations. It's, it's everything about you. It's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew's account. Be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. All those beatitudes are, are antithetic to what the world values. Jim Berg says, you don't change something by adding more of the same. In order to make a difference, you must be different. You need motivation for holiness? Something a little better than type A personalities in your past? Or cultural religious movements? Or institutions? Or authors? Or just wanting to be accepted by nice people? You need something deeper? Because... All of those will burn you out, and some of you have burned out. There are people not here in church or anywhere in church now because they burned out on that. That's what was preached. So maybe it's better that we get a higher, a higher motivation for our holiness. And Peter has served us well in these verses. You say, what has he done? He's given us what we were hungry for, a higher motivation. Why be holy? Because of the provision of the gospel, the battle for the mind, the return of the Lord, the pressure from the world, and the resemblance in the family. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, this message just came in sideways into your brain. Because you're like, what, do I need to get everything right so that God will want to save me? No, didn't, you can put that in the, in the shallow grave in the backyard as well. You can't do anything right in, in a holy God's sight. And that's what's beautiful. You're aware of your sin. And the Father sent the Son to die for your sin, to absorb the wrath you deserved. And he raised him from the dead. And at some point in time, he came to you. He said, believe, live. Perhaps he's saying that to you right now. And I would say, believe that Christ died for your sin and he rose from the dead. He is Lord. Repent of your sin and run to him for his salvation. And then this sermon makes sense. Why would I want to run back to and blend in what I was rescued from? My fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if I can borrow the wording of an old Southwest Airlines commercial, if you understand these motivations for holiness, you are now free to move about the country, is what Southwest Airlines would say. I say to you, you are now free to pursue holiness for all the right reasons. It was C.S. Lewis who said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the call to you, not only for salvation, but to personal holiness. And I pray that while this service will go into the tomb of time in a few minutes, I pray that these three verses will walk with us and run with us and drive with us and stand with us through the hours of this coming week until they make a difference, until they free us to the urgency of personal holiness.
and distinctiveness as a gospel people.